We are moving through geographically and chronologically through the three, three and a half years of Jesus' ministry and taking some time along the way to look at the people and the places and the teaching. Before we get started, though, I need to make an announcement to you for those of you here at the Oklahoma City campus, those of you watching us on live stream, is we're having a conference at Crossings next week. We won't have any of our Wednesday programming next week. So uh, there's a conference going on here. So for the live streaming and for those of you here, we'll take a week off next week, be back the following Wednesday and continue with our series. So just needed to let you know that we'll be off because if you show up, there'll be a ton of people here, but they won't be here for the same thing you are. So let me say a prayer for us and we'll jump right in. Lord, thank you so much for the many blessings you've given to us. We're grateful to live in the country where we can teach your word, we can study your word, where we can go act it out in this culture. Pray that you would give us the faith to see the needs around us and the courage to be compassionate and meet them. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as always, you can text your questions to this number, except last week when I was actually gone, live stream people go, really? We dozed through it like we always do. It, it was fine, you know, same as ever. Just kidding. But text your questions to that number while we're having class. I know we had a couple little technical glitches. My apologies to those of you in Edmond or on live stream. And so I'm going to do just a brief recap of the last lesson, and I'm just going to throw a couple slides in because I know some of you didn't see any of those. But if you remember, let me start with this map. This is uh, the nation of Israel at the time under the Romans, basically at the time of Jesus. Where have we been so far? About 26 or 27 A.D., when Jesus was about 30 years old, is when we're starting this ministry. And we talked about first his being baptized here. As you can see, I just tried to circle the Jordan River. And then he went... I can see this fine. I really don't understand what, what the problem is for you guys, because I'm seeing this just fine. Jesus basically started in the uh, Jordan River, when he, and he was baptized by John. You may remember that. And then he went out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights without food. Thank you very much, guys. So you see him here, basically where I put this red circle. I hope that's bold enough for you to see it. And after he had been there, we talked about the Exodus motif. Remember connecting the Exodus of the Israelites and the ministry of Jesus? And that's not a coincidence that this is a foreshadowing uh, the Exodus was a foreshadowing of Jesus' ministry. Then Jesus went on his way to Jerusalem, and we spent a little time in Jerusalem and showed a couple of events, which I'll recap in a second. And then he headed to Galilee. He came into Samaria, and at this little Sikar, at this little village, he met a Samaritan woman at the well. And then in our lesson, this lesson, he's going to continue his journey up to the area of the Galilee, around the sea of Galilee. So that's where we're headed. When he was in Jerusalem, I wanted to show you again this great picture. This is the Temple Mount today. Herod the Great enlarged the top of a mountain. It's bigger than when Solomon built the temple. He enlarged it and rebuilt the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians, and it was glorious. Today, you see a couple of mosques up there. This is the Dome of the Rock. It's a magnificent building, but it's one of the two Muslim mosques there. But in the time of Jesus, you would see a big temple complex right there. I'm going to go to a little bolder uh, line here. You see a big temple complex, and the temple itself was actually quite a bit bigger than the Dome of the Rock. And so that's where the temple sat. By the way, you can understand why there might be some tension. Jews say, hey, that's where our temple used to sit. Muslims say, Muslims say, no, it's not. That's the Dome of the Rock. Don't be thinking about rebuilding the temple. But that's the real estate that everybody's talking about. Great little model of the temple. This is what it would have looked like in Jesus' times called Herod's Temple. In other words, it's the temple to God that Herod refurbished and built. 
This is what it would look like. And so remember, in our last lesson, Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he goes in, and he goes into this big courtyard area called the Court of the Gentiles, which you didn't have to be Jewish to go there. You had to be Jewish to go any further into the temple. But this is where you had these tables set up, and that's where he overturned the tables of the money changers and drove out the people selling things because this was supposed to be an area of prayer. And so that was basically the temple in Jesus' time. He talked to Nicodemus, and if you remember, he basically, there's a theme running through what he's doing there. He overturned the tables and said, the way you're using this temple is not the way God intended. He met with Nicodemus and said, you must be born again. You have to be reborn. And Nicodemus is like, this is, wow, what, what are you talking about? He sort of overturned their theology, their religion. They thought, oh, I need to act better. Jesus said, no, you actually need to be completely remade, regenerated, reborn. And then finally, he went on to Samaria. And just one of the things I want to show you is this is Samaria today. That area is very fertile. It's just a beautiful area. And he met a Samaritan woman at the well. And there he sort of overturned Jewish custom because it was not proper for him to talk to a woman, and the Jews hated the Samaritans, and vice versa. And so Jesus was saying, look, I come with a gospel that is available to anyone. It doesn't matter your race, or it doesn't matter your socioeconomic status, or your ethnicity in this case. And so we saw a theme in our last lesson of Jesus sort of turning things upside down, bringing this message of the kingdom. And our our moral of the story, if you will, is that living in the kingdom of God, meaning being a Christ follower, is a very subversive thing to do. It tends to overturn a lot of the ideas out there in the world. So that's a quick recap of what we did last time. And let me pause for a second to pick up any questions we might have about that, since i sorry I wasn't here to answer those last time. A couple of questions. First... Why is the temple why was the temple built on that spot and is it holy to the Muslims for the same reason? Yes, why was the temple built on that particular mountain in Jerusalem? And the short answer to that is because that's where God said that mountain is where God said that's where I'll reside in the city of Jerusalem. David, the city of Jerusalem before 1000 BC was not Jewish. King David, call it around 1000 BC, conquered that city and it became known as the city of David. And he said, I'm going to build a temple for you here on this mount where you've said, and ended up his son Solomon built a temple there. So there are other things that happened on that mountain, but the short answer is that's where God said to build the temple. Now, why is that temple? I'll go ahead and switch back there for a second, and we'll just look at the uh, area. Why is that particular area holy to Muslims? Certainly not because there was a Jewish temple there. But there, the Dome of the Rock is called the Dome of the Rock because guess what's inside that mosque? There's a big old rock inside that mosque, and that rock was uh, special to the Jews, that place is special to the Jews because they thought, they believed that is where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, right? And God said, no, I'm going to sacrifice an animal instead. And so they think that happened there and God wanted them to build the uh, temple there. Muslims in the Quran, I'll make this really brief, but basically in the Quran, there is the story of the night journey of Muhammad. So think now, we're now, Muhammad was born 570 AD, so 570 years after Christ. Uh, Quran's written down 100 years after that. And so there's a story in the Quran about Muhammad one night being, having a, a vision, a little out of body experience, and he was taken from the Middle East and he was, he flew on this uh, creature with wings. I, I won't get into all the details. It's an interesting story. Anyway, but he basically comes here to that rock. And from that rock, he ascended into heaven. He talked to Moses. He talked to Jesus. He talked to God. Then he came back down, and then he flew back home. So that rock 
That place is holy because of that night journey of Muhammad. So it's holy for different reasons than the Jews would consider it holy. So great question. I don't think I did that justice, but that's essentially what is going on in that story. Okay. Quickly, what's the difference between Herod's temple and Solomon's temple? Quickly? (laughs) This is coaching in action. You see how this works here? Solomon built a temple about 930 B.C. to God. Fast forward a little bit to 586 B.C., so let's move 300 years later. The Babylonians, remember King Nebuchadnezzar came down, they invaded the Jews, and they destroyed that temple. Well, a little bit later, the Persian rulers let the Jews who had conquered the Babylonians, they let the Jews come back. And so think Nehemiah rebuilding the wall. This is all just moving through the Old Testament here. And Ezra the priest comes back, reads the law, people start worshiping God again. They sort of do their best to kind of put the temple back together as best they can, but it's really not very good. Fast forward till almost the time of Jesus, Herod the Great becomes king of this area. And he said, well, he claimed to be a Jew, even though he likely was not, but his point was, I want a grand temple in my capital city. And so he funded refurbishing the temple to be as glorious as the one Solomon had built. So you have the first temple Solomon built, Babylonians destroy it, Herod builds a second one, and by the way, it will be destroyed by the Romans shortly afterwards. That wasn't quickly, but it was quicker. That's good. Okay, last week we talked about the woman at the well and some other stories. When we have a story like that and no one else is there, how does the person writing, in this case, John, know what happened? Good question. So you've got Jesus and the woman. How does John, in this case, because we studied it from the Gospel of John, how does he know what was said? Well, let me give you a couple of ideas there. First of all, I think I'll say this politely. Basically, we believe that the Scripture is inspired by God. In other words, the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit and he will remind you and teach you all the things that I have not taught you. So we believe that John had knowledge from the Holy Spirit that he did not have. We don't think this is just a human product. Fair enough? So one reason is the Holy Spirit definitely knew and we believe that this is what God wanted written. It is inspired. Second thing that happens a lot of times in the scripture is people talk to each other. Did the Holy Spirit tell him that? And he go, I had no idea. He's John writing Revelation. He goes, whoa, I saw a vision, but I have no idea what this means. But I'm going to tell you what the Holy Spirit told me. It could be that. could be writing down what he saw eyewitness. In this case, he didn't see it as an eyewitness. So unless Jesus told him that, uh, it seems that he would have known that from the Holy Spirit. But... Oftentimes, you'll just see people talking about these things. I'm sure the woman, she went back to town and started telling everybody, I met this guy, and I said this, and he said that, and he said that. Can you believe this? So there were obviously other ways. I just don't want you to think it only had to be human mechanism, because this is more than human work. So inspiration or gossip. (laughs) Well, let's move on to this lesson. So Jesus is heading for the Galilee. This is the very northern part of Israel, and this is where Jesus is from. So you see the town of Nazareth, where Jesus was raised. He was born back near Jerusalem, obviously, at Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a suburb of Jerusalem, but he was raised up here in Nazareth. And so this is the Sea of Galilee area. The Sea of Galilee is about 11 miles long, and it's about three to five miles wide, depending on where you are. So in Oklahoma, that's a good-sized lake. We would not call that a sea, but there it's called a sea. The Sea of Galilee has several names in Scripture because it was called different things at different times. The Lake of Kinneret, K-I-N-N-E-R-E-T or E-T-H. The Lake of Gennesaret the Sea of Galilee, 
or the Sea of Tiberius. Tiberius was a Roman emperor, and they renamed it. In fact, he, there was a city built there for him, Tiberius, on the Sea of Galilee. And so you'll see all those names. They're all referring to the Sea of Galilee right here in the north. So I want to show you some pictures, but I'm going to tell you where we're going to be standing. We're going to be standing on a mountain right there. We're going to be looking right down on that town of Magdala, and we're going to be looking at this north end of the Sea of Galilee. You recognize some of these town names, Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida. All of these towns show up and many other little villages there in the Gospels. Jesus traveled all around this lake preaching. So we're going to take some views from here because I want you to see how beautiful this area in the Sea of Galilee is. So here we are standing on that mountain. It's called Mount Arbel, A-R-B-E-L. And there we see the northern portion of the Sea of Galilee. Migdal or Magdala is right there. By the way, you actually know that town. In Hebrew, it's Migdal, but it comes to us as Magdal or Magdala. And do you remember anybody from that town? Mary Magdalene. Magdalene isn't her last name. Magdalene is, Mar and they got a lot of Marys, okay? It's like they reuse this name a lot. So you've got, because of uh, Moses' sister. So Mary from Magdala. So Mary the Magdalene. And so Mary Magdalene was from that town. Let me show you another view. This is, uh, these are from our trips. I've got one that's not. That's probably a little better quality than anything I would take. But you'll see. So you've got Capernaum back around here. You've got Bethsaida off in the distance. You know, you've got Chorazin back here, Migdal here. So you've got Jesus moving all around this Sea of Galilee. And then finally, here's another great shot. It's very fertile area up there. In fact, this is total sideline, so I'll make it really brief. Remember, the Bible's happening in real history, real politics, real economics. One of the reasons there was a lot of tension between the, the Jews and the Galilee, and you've got the Samaritans in the middle, everybody hated them. They just went, they didn't exist. So you've got the Jews in the Galilee, you've got the Jews down here in Jerusalem. Well, Galilee's a rich area. I mean, this is fertile, very rich, and so they paid a lot of taxes to Jerusalem so they could build, you know, the Civic Center Music Hall and a couple of new interstates and that kind of thing, and nobody's ever building interstates up here. And so there was a lot of political tension between the Galileans and the Jews in the south. And in fact, most of the revolts in that time started up here in the Galilee, and they started for political economic reasons. So back to the story. Let's leave the mountain for a second and let's get on a boat about right here and let's look back and see where we've been. So here we are in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and this is where we were standing. We were standing on Mount Arbel, just a beautiful view around and here's the village of Magdala right there. But you can kind of get a feel, you can see across the Sea of Galilee easily, three to five miles across. You think you could swim across there. I can't swim across there, but it's really not that big. And then I wanted to show you just what the shoreline looks like. It's beautiful. In Israel today, this is a big resort area. People have come here and uh, you can boat and that kind of thing. But I want you to see just how easy it would be to get fishing boats in and out there. And there were villages with fishermen all around the Sea of Galilee. Just a couple of really pretty shots. This is a sunrise Sea of Galilee with modern-day boats, and uh, then a sunset. They're just really pretty. Uh, there are times when it's just like glass like that, but we, we may or may not talk about any of the storms on the Sea of Galilee, but I will tell you that the, the storms can come up very quickly. And I don't mean storms like out in the Atlantic Ocean with 30-foot waves, but I have seen waves, you know, almost up to my waist, and I'm going to show you the boats they were in, and I'll tell you why that was so dangerous at the time. This is a boat. So I'm trying to give you a feel for the Sea of Galilee and the life there, and then I want you to help you understand a, a text that I want you to see. This is actually a first-century fishing boat. This boat could easily have been used in Jesus' time. It is literally from that time. And it's obviously not complete, but it's amazing. It was buried in the mud for 2,000 years. And that's why it's so well-preserved. 
But that is a fishing boat from the first century. And so they took that and made it a little model. So I'm going to show you what it would look like, the boats that the fishermen in those times and Jesus and the disciples would have been in. It would typically have one little mast that you could put up and take down, a small sail, but uh, not a lot to these boats. Here's another picture. You can kind of get a picture of the size. They were not very large boats. Uh, they, it was very difficult to build these, very expensive for them to build them, but that would have been literally the kind of boat, when you read about fishermen in the Sea of Galilee, that in the first century is almost in, certainly what they're using. And then here's a picture of the inside. You can see it's not very big inside. And so it wouldn't take a lot of fish to weight it down. You couldn't get that many people in it. And it wouldn't take very many waves to swamp the boat. And so when you see Jesus and the disciples and a storm comes up, it doesn't have to be you know, a typhoon. It, but you get some wind come up quickly and get some waves, you could easily drown in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. So I wanted you to get a feel for what this area looks like and what that fishing boat would have been like. I want to show you what the, uh, this is a neat picture of a place. I don't know who that guy is, but that is what the shoreline looks like around there. And so here's how they would fish. First of all, their nets were not very big. Don't think commercial fishermen. Don't think, you know, Discovery Channel, you know, out in the North Sea, you know, that kind of a thing. Think nets that you sort of throw out and you pull back in. These are not big nets. They also fish in shallow water. You can see out there in that water, they wouldn't go more than 100 yards out because once you get to deep water, what do you, what do you got? You got a net, the fish are way down there. So if you stay in about 100 yards out, you've got relatively shallow water and overnight, especially early in the morning, that's where the fish will be and so they could cast their nets. So fishermen usually fished all night. They didn't fish during the day because the fish went on out into deeper water. They had no way to get to them. So when you read about the fishermen coming in, in the Gospels, they've been fishing all night. And so not so much during the day, just nothing to catch during the day. So they had small uh, nets that they would hand throw and they would go out, you know, 50 to 100 yards out. And that's how they fished. That's the only way they could get to the fish because they couldn't fish in deep waters. Question? Is the Sea of Galilee freshwater or saltwater, and what is its provenance? Hey, great question. Is the Sea of Galilee freshwater? Yes, it is. And uh, what is its provenance? I'm going to tell you a story about a place called Benias. If I have a map here, I will uh, show you this. Uh, I do, but it's not exactly handy. Here you go. Okay. The Sea of Galilee gets water from up here. It's off our map. And I will show you where the springs are that are the headwaters of the Jordan River. Goes into the Sea of Galilee and then flows down the Jordan River all the way to the Dead Sea, which is salt. But this is all fresh water. Now, here's an interesting sideline again, rabbit trail. Modern day politics. Golan Heights. This, okay, roughly, that's the Golan Heights. Used to be Syria before 1967. Before 1967, think about this. This is the big source of fresh water for the entire 7 million Jews that live in Israel. And half of that lake is on the Syrian side. So Israel has become very good at desalinization. In other words, taking seawater and making it drinkable. Nevertheless, they very much depend on this. Well, you're the Syrians, 1960s. They've had Jewish independence. You've already tried to wipe them out one time. I'm not making a political statement. I'm just telling you, understand why things happen. The Syrians decided, hey, I got time. If we can't beat the Jews this way, we'll, we'll dam up the Jordan River and we'll just let them all die of thirst. I mean, so they seriously were using their control of that fresh water to try to destroy Israel. So in 1967, Israel, the 1967 war, Israel took the Golan Heights. They also took the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt, another story from another day. They gave the Sinai Peninsula back, but they have never given the Golan Heights back. And that's one of the reasons. That's one of the reasons is having access to that fresh water. So 
little off the subject, sorry about that, but good question. That is fresh water, it comes from a little further north, and it is the main source of fresh water. Okay? Well, let's go to a story then. I want to tell you a Bible story, and let's talk about this event, and I think it will mean a lot more. This is early in Jesus' ministry, and in these two lessons I want to look at, I want you to see Jesus calling his disciples, not all 12 of them, but I want to talk about his disciples a little bit. And imagine this happening right where we were. In other words, let me go back. This is going to happen right here on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus is teaching, and there are a couple of fishing boats pulled up. It's in the morning. They've been fishing all night. They've pulled their boats up, and they're cleaning their nets. And Jesus is talking, and there are tons of people crowding around, like crowding them into the lake. I mean, they want to hear what Jesus is teaching. So from Luke chapter 5, listen to this. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee, with people crowding all around him and listening to the word of God, he, sat at, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, that's Simon Peter, that's the Disciple Peter, whose brother is Andrew, also a disciple, and they're fisher, fishermen together. They own a boat, got their own little business there, fishermen. And so he got into one of the boats, Simon Peter's, asked him to put out a little bit from the shore. And then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. This is brilliant. So he, he gets out 20, 30 yards. Now the people can come right up to the edge. Nobody's crushing Jesus. And when he speaks, his voice just goes right off that water. It really works. I mean, you can talk to a lot of people that way. So he put out in the boat a little bit. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Peter, why don't you put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch? Well, Peter answered him, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. Let me translate that for you. You're a preacher, we're fishermen. Don't be telling me where to fish. What did he tell him? It's absurd. Go into the deep water. Your nets aren't going to catch anything in deep water because the fish are too far down. Secondly, it's daytime, you know, so go out into the deep water. It's like you're wasting my time. He says, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, went to the deep water, let down their nets, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their business partners in the other boat. This is, as you can tell here in just a second, James and John, two more of the disciples. So they have two little businesses and they're business partners. A signal to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both of the boats so full that the boats began to sink. When Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and his companions were astonished at the catch of fish. Not only that they caught fish, but how many fish. It's like this should not happen. They realize something miraculous has just happened. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's business partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catchers, fishers of men. You will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, and they left everything, and they followed him. This is the calling of the, some of the first of Jesus' disciples. And I wanted you to have a feeling of where this was and what was happening, and I hope it makes a little more sense, the putting out from shore, how ridiculous Jesus' comment was to them, to put out into deep water, catch the fish. And then, it, unless you understand that, you have no idea, why did Peter react that way? Because that's obviously a miracle. There's just no way that happens. I mean, it just can't happen. And, but it did. And so he realizes this Jesus is no preacher. This Jesus is a prophet. He's a man with power, with miraculous power. And one of the things I wanted to point out, I have two observations about this lesson. So I hope it comes alive a little bit more for you to realize what's happening and why they're reacting that way. But isn't it interesting, I don't know about you, but if you and I were in that situation, we might go, whoa, we are 
awed and I don't, boy, I don't know about that guy. He's powerful. I'm, you know, let me just shrink away and don't notice me. But notice what he says. He said, go away from me because I am a sinful man. I want to remind you something that the prophet Isaiah said uh, 700 years earlier. This is in Isaiah chapter 6, and just listen to the similarities. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord, I saw a vision of the Lord sitting on his throne, and I saw the angels, the seraphim around him, and they were singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I said to myself, Oh no, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so the reaction of people when they get into the presence of God, when they encounter Jesus, the reaction of people is to immediately be very aware of how sinful we are. Does that make sense? You see that over and over in the Bible, even in the Revelation of John, when he sees an angel, he falls on his faith and goes, face and says, I'm not worthy. When we come into the presence of Jesus, one of the things that happens to us is we become acutely conscious that we are not worthy, that we are sinful. And if we come into the presence of Jesus, if we encounter him in our daily lives, in our worship, in our Bible reading, we encounter Jesus through his spirit all the time as Christ followers. And we ever don't get that feeling of, Lord, I am a sinful man. Then we have lost that we really aren't encountering the real Jesus. Now, is that bad news or good news? That's good news because you know what that drives us to? It drives us immediately to thank you for your forgiveness of me. It's not a guilt thing, but it should hit us in a way that we realize how unworthy we are, how great our God is, and what an incredible gift we've been given. You start your day like that every day, you and I will live differently. But that's how people in the Bible reacted. The second thing I want to point out here, this is one of my favorite statements in the Bible. He says this, but because you say so. How many times have you been in a situation where you read the Bible, you read the Word of God, and you feel the prompting of His Spirit in you that you need to do the right thing. You need to do things God's way. You need to not take revenge. You need to give forgiveness. You need to not cheat. You need to not stick a knife in that guy's back even though he tried to do the same to you. In other words, you get in these situations where you want to handle this your way. What did Peter want to do? He said, look, you're a preacher. I'm a fisherman. I know everything. Uh, how many times have you said that to God? Maybe not in those words, but that's kind of what you've said. I'll tell you how you and I say it. I don't go to God and say, God, I know you're a little slow. Follow me here. Here's what we need to do. No, but here is what I do. I say, Lord, you are the great God of the universe. I have a very small thing for you to do. In fact, to save you the time and trouble, I've already worked out a plan. And so, here's the problem. And if you'll just smite that guy, and if you'll just miraculously make that happen, I think I can take it from there. That's how we tell God we know better. That's really what we do. But listen to Peter. This is why Peter is chosen as a disciple. Is he chosen because he can control his mouth? Obviously not. Peter has no filter between here and here, right? You're going to see that over and over in his life. Is he chosen because he's educated? No. Is he chosen because he goes to synagogue more often than the other Jewish kids? No, he's not. Why is he chosen? That's one of the greatest statements of faith in the Bible. Because you said so, I will do it. That's the story of Abraham. It's the story of Moses. It's the story of every faithful person throughout the Bible. And it's the story of you and me and every Christ follower. I will do things your way because you say so. I trust you. That's one of the most faithful statements in the Bible uh, from Peter. And I think that's why. And my question to me, every time I read this, every time I think of it, I think of the Sea of Galilee, I think of those people being there at that time, and I think of Peter's expression of faith. You know, this isn't going to work. 
but because you say so, I will do what you want. And then, of course, he exceeds even his wildest dreams. Remember Ephesians 3.20? You know, this is the God who can do far more than we can ask or even imagine, and that's what you see happening here. How many times do we forfeit what God has in mind for us because we go, no, I know better. If we would just say, because you said so, I think God will fill our boats to overflowing. The question for you and me is, are we willing to say, because you said so, I will do this. To me, this is just one of the great stories of faith. Well, it's one other story I kind of like to give you in this area. I'll tell you a little bit of politics for a second. I want to show you this area of the Galilee was an interesting place. So I want to talk to you about two more of Jesus' disciples. Remember Herod the Great? He was king over this whole area when Jesus was born. Well, it's 30 years later. Herod the Great has died. What happened to his kingdom? Well, he divided it up amongst his boys. And so you got four little kings. And I want to tell you about two of them. One of them is Antipas, Herod Antipas, A-N-T-I-P-A-S. And the other is Herod Philip. And so this area, let me move to the next map. I'm going to focus in right here uh, on an area that I've already drawn all kinds of stuff on for you. So sorry about that. We'll just get rid of that. And back to this. So this is the dividing line. You see that coloring? So this is Antipas. He is Herod's son. And then over here, you get Philip. Why is this important? It's important because I want to tell you about this little, this little village of Capernaum right there. Capernaum shows up in the Gospels probably more than any other single place. Capernaum was one of the larger villages around that area. And when I say larger, I mean a few thousand people. I'm not talking Edmond, Oklahoma here. You know, we're talking a few thousand people, but that's a pretty big place. You may remember that the Romans had a garrison there. There was at least, at least a centurion there, which means likely a hundred Roman soldiers. So this was one of the more administrative centers. Why is Capernaum an administrative center? Because it's on the border of two kingdoms. So when you would go into and out of these two sons' kingdoms, it's like you're going from one state to another, and so you're going to pay taxes, right? I mean, as you're driving the interstate along there, you've got to switch from Oklahoma turnpike tolls to Kansas turnpike tolls, right? So you go out of there, there's taxing going on there. A lot of tax collectors in this area because it's an administrative center, and it is an administrative center because it's on a political boundary. Does that make sense? So let me show you a little bit about this place. I want you to get a feel for Capernaum, and then this will make more sense about what's going to happen in the next story. This is a view, Sea of Galilee, and the area of Capernaum, just a beautiful area. Great fishing, great farming, very verdant then and now. Another view of the town of Capernaum. And then I want to show you one of the big buildings there, what's left of that. This is the big synagogue in Capernaum. This is a big synagogue. That synagogue is from the 4th century A.D., so 300s A.D. But right underneath, you can see that's that white limestone. Beautiful. Would have been a big two-story Magnificent building, but it was built right on top of these stones, which are basalt. They're just the more common basalt. That's the first century synagogue. That's the synagogue Jesus was in in the first century. That synagogue, you Bible scholars out there are thinking, ah, I remember a story in the Gospels where Jesus is in Capernaum and the Jewish leaders say, this centurion, this Roman centurion, would you please heal his servant because he donated the money to build our synagogue. He built that synagogue for the Jews in the first century. So it's sitting right underneath this, this beautiful synagogue from the fourth century. So what you see is this town that's an administrative center. It's got a Roman garrison. It's got all kinds of tax collectors. There's all kinds of business being done. There's another view. These are houses, remains of what are houses and administrative buildings. And then that's a side view of that beautiful synagogue. 
give you another shot of that. It really is magnificent from the fourth century. And so there's a Jewish presence there, even in the fourth century. And then you can kind of see here, these are actually pretty good ruins, but you've got a first floor, you've got a second floor, pretty magnificent thing. So this town of Capernaum is really buzzing. I mean, it's got big synagogue, a lot of houses, pretty good sized place. And Jesus comes into Capernaum and he finds another one of his disciples. So let me tell you this story. After this, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector. Now, there were a lot of tax collectors in Capernaum, and now you understand why is there a tax collector up here in Godibo? You know, I mean, this is Galilee. This isn't Jerusalem. This is happening in this administrative center on the border of those two kingdoms. Found a tax collector by the name of Levi. You know him better as Matthew, the disciple Matthew. Levi is his Jewish name. He was sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi, Matthew, got up, he left everything, and he followed Jesus. Then Matthew held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. First of all, Matthew must have some cash because he's got a house, got a big enough house to throw a banquet, and he's got enough money to have this barbecue, right? So he throws a banquet for Jesus and all of his tax collector buddies. And so they were all eating with him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to that strict sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, I want to make two observations here. First one, sometimes we think Jesus hung out with sinners, and that is true. And we think he said to them, God loves you. That is true. And we think he said to them, I know people have told you before that you couldn't get right with God, but you can. That's true. And sometimes we stop there. And he said to them, you boys, love you. Keep on going. That's not what he said. He called them to repentance, just like he called you and me to repentance. What does repentance mean? Repentance means change your direction, change your mind, and thereby change your life. It's not really a behavioral thing. It's not like a self-help book, but it says, look, you've been heading down this way and you've been chasing fame and power and security and whatever it is you thought in life. Repent means I want you to change and I want you to follow me. And we're going to be pursuing other things, different things. So he called the sinners to repentance. Second observation is this. I want to tell you about two disciples. The first one is Matthew. So Matthew is a sinner. Matthew is a tax collector. Matthew is a traitor. Since many of you have probably heard sermons on this, I won't go into a great detail, but here's the way this worked. It's a great business. Romans go to the Herods and say, I need a million dollars a year tax money out of your district if you want to stay king. Herods go, absolutely, that's a great deal. It's a deal you can't refuse. I'll kick you back a million every year. I will get you the taxes. So how do they go about doing that? They go subcontract. It's like tag agencies. Okay, I shouldn't have said that. I'm not saying tag agents are sinners. Okay, I'm not saying that. But think about the state wants to license these things, so they authorize these tag agents around here. I'm going to get so much email on this. But that's what they did. They would franchise out tax collection. So Matthew's part of a consortium that bid. Well, they're not dumb. He says, how much will you pay me in taxes if I give you this territory, if I give you Metro Capernaum and two of the suburbs? And they would bid. And you would win the contract and say, okay, I gotta make a hundred thousand to you. I gotta give you a hundred thousand. Then you would take some Roman soldiers with you and you'd go door to door and you start collecting taxes. How much do you collect? As much as you can get. Because guess what you do if you collect more than a hundred thousand? You keep it. How do you think Matthew bought that house? It's a very lucrative business. But imagine yourself a Jew. Fellow Jew knocks on the door, a couple of Roman soldiers with him, starts hunting through everything, says, we printed out your bank accounts, and you're going to pay this amount of money. It would feel like traitor. You're extorting money, which they were, extorting money. And you are cheating me, which they were. They were cheating him. And so Matthew was like, 
You're worse than the Romans because you're one of us and here you are profiting from oppressing your own people. So Matthew was a tax collector. He's a sinner. He's hated by the Jews. In fact, they wouldn't even eat with this guy. And that's why they're upset with Jesus. Well, I want to tell you about one other disciple. This is great. This is a uh, Eastern Orthodox icons. This is not what they look like. This is not a group photo, okay? But this is 12 disciples, right? And these are their icons. So one of them we just talked about. This is our friend Matthew right here. I want to talk to you about this guy, Simon. His name is Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were a political party. The Zealots were revolutionaries. In other words, the Zealots said, we're Jews, we have Roman overseers, and that's not right. God will not tolerate that. We all need to rise up and we need to overthrow the Romans. Most of the Jews are like, we already tried that a couple times and they are way too powerful. You guys quit agitating, you know, quit sending those petitions around and all that kind of stuff. But the Zealots were like, no, and they got so angry at the Jews, they would not only do little terrorist raids and occasionally knife a Roman soldier, and then the Romans would come in and everything would get bad for a while. They would also kill some of the Jewish leaders who wouldn't join them. So the Zealots were dangerous people. In fact, let's fast forward from 27 AD to 70 AD. So Jesus is raised from the dead, Christians. 70 AD, actually 66. 66 AD, the zealots succeed in sparking a revolution against the Romans. They basically overrun a Roman garrison, kill all the Roman soldiers. The Jewish leaders are like, no, 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 we do not want to rebel against Rome. But then the people said, yeah, stick it to those Romans. And they started a rebellion. And before you know it, all of Judea is in rebellion against the Romans. Well, four years later, Romans come rolling in, absolutely destroy the place. Destroy that temple of Herod, kill a million Jews in the process of doing this. And so the zealots sparked that. So now I want you to think about this. So Jesus has got these fishermen with him, and he's got Matthew. He brings Matthew back, and the fishermen are like, him? He's a sinner. Mom said, I can't even eat with those guys. Shake hands? I'm not shaking hands with you. You're unclean. And Jesus says, no, he's going to be your brother. He's going to be one of my disciples. That's exactly what Jesus did. And they're like, whoa, do you really know what you're doing? Yeah, think of the fish, though. This, this guy is a prophet from God. So they bring Matthew in, and they don't like Matthew too well. Let me tell you how Matthew's dressed. These guys are fishermen. Matthew comes in. He's got a three-piece suit on. Matthew's got a tie. He's got gold cufflinks. I mean, he's just impeccable, right? Nice shine on his shoes. He's a tax collector. He's rich. He's like, yeah, here I am. Simon the Zealot shows up the next day, and Jesus said, oh, yeah, he's one of my disciples too. The other guys go, you're kidding me. Here's what Simon the Zealot looks like. Simon the Zealot... He's got tats everywhere. I mean, he's tattooed everywhere. He's got piercings everywhere. He's got kind of a bump under his cloak, and you know it's a knife, and you know he does not have a concealed carry permit, right? And so you know, wonder, who has he killed with this? So the fishermen are a little nervous, but you know what Matthew's doing? He's freaking out, right? It's like, Who's going to go first? I mean, they're all traveling together. They sleep. Every night, Matthew goes to sleep thinking, Lord, I just want to wake up in the morning. Please don't let Simon the Zealot knife me in the night. Seriously, this is, this is the hostility. And Jesus calls all these guys to be his disciples. It's crazy. I want you to understand how unbelievable this is that Jesus brings these people together. He brings educated and uneducated. He brings Democrats and Republicans. He even brings the zealots into this. He brings urban dwellers and rural dwellers. Jesus' disciples are a complete mix. There's none of them that are standouts, but just stop and think about that for a minute. You have a guy who's trying to start a revolution and is really seriously thinking, if nobody's looking, I'm sticking a knife in Matthew's ribs. And then you got Matthew like, I left my mansion for this. You know, these guys smell like fish. 
You know, I mean, think about how different they all are. And I want you to get that feeling of that. Because I don't want you to think of Jesus and his disciples and the Gospels as once upon a time, there was Jesus and his 12 disciples, the fellowship of the ring. And they were on a great quest. You know, I don't want you to think about that. I want you to think every time they had a discussion, it was tense, right? And Jesus is teaching them. And that's intentional. And you know why it's intentional? It's intentional for this reason. Because only the gospel, only Jesus Christ crucified on the cross, raised from the dead to reconcile us to God, can actually bring people together. It's only by that vertical reconciliation we have any hope of horizontal reconciliation. Heard a great preacher last week. His name is H.B. Charles. He's a preacher in uh, Florida, a black man. And he was talking about Christians, and he was preaching on the text in 1 Corinthians. That text, in fact, I'll just read it to you. 1 Corinthians says this. Paul says, when I came to you to preach, I did not come to you with good speaking or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, Paul said, I didn't come to you with all these fancy arguments and this eloquent speech. I just came to tell you about Jesus Christ. He was crucified on a cross to bear your sins. He was raised from the dead. And that's all my message is to you. And that will change your life. The cross and Christ crucified. And H.B. Charles said this. We we're talking about racial reconciliation, particularly among Christians, but in our world. He said, any attempt at racial reconciliation, and I'm using race here, but you got, don't have race in, in this picture. You have all kinds of other things, and we have all kinds of things that divide us. But this was a great statement he made. He said, any attempt at racial reconciliation that is based on anything other than Jesus Christ and him crucified is a human endeavor, and it will fail. And it's sure enough, you think about all of the history, American history, let's just confine it to American history. We have not succeeded. I'm not saying things haven't changed, but I'm saying we have not succeeded in racial reconciliation. And I believe H.B. Charles is exactly right. I believe the Apostle Paul is exactly right. The only way you can bring Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector and the smelly fisherman and all these people together to literally be brothers fellow children of God and die together for that message is because of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I, I think as we look at the disciples of Jesus, I wanted you to see where these things happen and why they make sense. But two powerful lessons. One is, are we willing to say, because you said so, that's where I will go or that is what I will do. And the second is to realize that any basis we have for socioeconomic, ethnic, racial reconciliation, I am convinced that is for any other common basis than Jesus Christ and him crucified will fail. And it's up to us to say, because you said so, I will shake hands with Simon the Zealot. Because you said so, Matthew the tax collector will be my brother. And I wanted you to see this lesson of Jesus' disciples because that's what you and I are. We are Jesus' disciples. We are followers of Jesus, and that's exactly what we need to be doing. Okay? So go live that out this week. Go live out being a disciple of Jesus. God bless you, and the same for me. Next time, remember two weeks here, we're going to see the second year of Jesus' ministry. He's going to go back to Jerusalem and find out what they did with those tables. I'll see you in two weeks.